This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Underwriting has been provided by RSM, providing audit, tax, and consulting services in the middle market automotive industry. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today, we're going to be talking about the retail end of the business. And our special guest for today's show is Eric Lyman. He's the Chief Industry Analyst for Automotive Lease Guide. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Steve Finley from Wards. And Steve, it's always great to have you on the show as well. Thanks. I appreciate being here, John. Well, Eric, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, let's get into what ALG does, Automotive Lease Guide does. You set residual values. And first off, explain what do you mean by residual values and how does that differ from resale values of a car? Yeah, so when we talk about residual values versus resale, we're, we're generally speaking about a future-looking forecast of the value of the vehicle um, rather than kind of today's value that you'd expect to, you know, go sell the vehicle at a private party or trade it into a dealer. So that's the nuance there. And uh, ALG has been around for 50 years. Um, the founder was actually an owner of a car dealership in Santa Monica and wanted to get a quicker turnover from some of his customers that were holding his vehicles too long. So he generated this idea of leasing and uh, set those future values and lowered those monthly payments. And the rest is history. You know, leasing has obviously taken the world by storm and accounts for close to 30% of, of sales in, in the retail market today. And uh, we are um, an independent third party uh, that's leveraged by the automakers and the captives to determine what those future use values will be. We also work in a consulting capacity with automakers to plan for volume and pricing and content. And we also help manage portfolio risk for captive lenders and the asset-backed securities market in the automotive industry. Eric, how do you set the residual value for a vehicle two or three years later? I mean, if it's something that's been in the market for a long time, an F-150 pickup, a Toyota Camry or something like that, you got a guide to, to figure it out. But what if some model is brand new, never been on the market? How do you figure out what it's going to be worth two or three years down the road? Yeah, well, you're spot on there, uh, which is it's easy to forecast the value of a future, the future value of a vehicle if everything's the same. So an F-150, uh, whatever the value is of a three-year-old today, if everything's the same, then that's what the new vehicle is going to be worth in three years. But, um, you know, lucky for us at ALG, uh, that's why we're in demand, because nothing stays the same. So the products change, the competitive products change, um, the macroeconomic environment changes, gas prices change. So we have, you know... Uh, very expansive data set and coefficients for a lot of those variables. Um, the tricky part comes uh, with brand new products and not just brand new products, but brand new brands 
uh, brand new segments, brand new verticals like uh, electric vehicles or hybrids. Um, and, and in that situation, we have to essentially rely on the art uh, a bit more than, than the science in that case. I should say um, a bit more than a normal situation. There's always going to be a science and there's always data. But we have to, um, you know, survey consumers, um, try and, and, and get a gauge on what we think the market and the appetite will be. And, and then we, you know, very quickly start to aggregate market data. When the vehicles are about one, one year old, we start to see some initial returns and we very quickly start to comb through that data and make adjustments uh, to our forecast accordingly. And it, and it is tricky. And, you know, sometimes we have, have uh, misses, sometimes we nail it. And, um, you know, that's just the way it goes in the forecasting business. As I tell my team, we're always going to be wrong. You know, just the volatility in, in the marketplace, uh, vehicle to vehicle. I often say if you take the first vehicle at auction and you drive it around to the back of the line and you put that same vehicle through on the same day, we actually see volatility in industry average of about $700 to $800. So, our forecast goes down to $25 increments. So of course we're gonna have some variance. Of course, it's our job to minimize what that variance is. Yeah, it can be an art and it can be a science. It's mainly a science. You know, we were talking about the, um, well, for, for one thing, the residual values are used to, to set the lease terms on a vehicle. That's how you build the lease and the monthly payments is what you think that vehicle is going to be worth and what you'll be able to sell it for once it comes off lease. But it was a time about 20 years ago, or early, uh, you know, 2000s, that uh, it seemed like uh, it was a real push market. The manufacturers were making more vehicles uh, than the market was demanding. And, um, and the lease uh, residuals got out of whack. Uh, it wasn't a question of, whether they were going to be incorrect or not. They were all incorrect, essentially. And there's a reason for that, right? In a way, the system was gamed by maybe some of the manufacturers out of desperation. Desperate desperate people do desperate things, right? And it was a pretty desperate situation back then. Yeah, the leasing boom in the, in the mid-90s uh, really did get out of hand. I joined Automotive Lease Guide in, uh, in 1999, so kind of at the tail end of that, unfortunately, right as all those vehicles were starting to come back to the market. And when I first joined in our conference room, we had a bookshelf with about 70 to 70 to 80 uh, white label books. You know, we were publishing them. We were doing the baseline forecast. And then you, they would slap a Bank of America or a Ford Credit cover on it and send it out to all the dealers. And everyone at, at the early part of that wave was making so much money in leasing um, the automakers and the non-captive lenders started to compete for market share and it became essentially an arms race. So you're going to take the ALG forecast on the expedition and bump it up four points. I'm going to go five. Next edition, the next of the person would go up six and we would have um, Savine residuals of, you know, up to 10, 11, 12 points. And that combined with perhaps um, an overstatement on our baseline forecast really created a, a huge amount of risk that came back to, to bite the industry uh, around, you know, 2000, 2001, right about the time we had the dot-com bubble and some other economic challenges in the early 2000s. So it was kind of a perfect storm. Some of it created by the industry, some of it created by uh, non-captive finance and, of course, the macroeconomic environment that we all have to operate in as well. And, you know, a lot of those non-captives are out of the business for good. Um, that was just a, too painful of an experiment. 
And, you know, leasing now is, yeah, definitely. I mean, leasing now is in the 90% captive uh, market share. And, you know, they have the benefit of making some profit on the unit itself, the car itself. Uh, And and the the leasing is really just to help support, you know, increased turnover uh, of of ownership. Uh, Leasing is correlated with loyalty. And that's why we're seeing a lot of automakers really invest in supporting higher residual values. And and, uh, the the market has responded. We're seeing about 30% of retail sales are uh, leases. And it's been that way for quite some time. And I don't think there's going to be any any signs of decline going forward with the way millennials are, are purchasing um, all of their consumer goods and some of the benefits for the automakers as well. Eric, I, I'm, let's go back to electric cars for the moment. We've seen some of the early electric cars have absolutely abysmal residual values. But my understanding is that Tesla does pretty well. Uh, do you guys follow Tesla as well? And what are you seeing happening in the EV segment? Well, we absolutely do. We've been tracking Tesla internally since they launched. Um, and, you know, now we have them in our generic guidebook, what we call just our data set that we, we give to all of our clients. And they do fantastically well. I mean, they're, they're retaining about 50% of their MSRP and they have for some time. We haven't yet seen the impact of Model 3 in the used market. They've not reached maturity. So, we always like to say we want to, we're more concerned about what's the value once the honeymoon period is over. And I think we're still in the honeymoon period for Tesla. They have an enigmatic leader. They have a, a almost cult-like following. Um, and that all sort of buoys up uh, their values. And it, it's a fascinating thing to watch. And it's something all the automakers are trying to emulate, but they certainly haven't been able to. But one of the big reasons that we think Tesla is so unique is because of their charging infrastructure and their range. So they introduced, you know, a 250 mile range with a pretty robust infrastructure. And that's something that the other automakers with their first generation of BEVs weren't able to put out into the marketplace. One of the other things that Tesla has is over the air updates. So the car can actually get better over its life, whereas most other cars, you know, just deteriorate as as they get older. Now we're going to see this year General Motors and Ford coming out with vehicles that are capable mm-hmm. of over-the-air updates as well. How does that affect or does it affect how you set residual values? Yeah, it does. You know, the, the most important aspect are going to be of the vehicle or some of the things that you can't necessarily update over the air. I mean, design is a big uh, aspect of valuation, especially in the premium sector where people want the latest and greatest, certainly technology. And technology is going to be dependent on hardware, which you can't update over the air. I think Tesla has proven that over the update, over the air updates are going to be uh, the, the the cost of entry going forward in the future. Um, and I, but I, I think um, it, it's really difficult to under. And then of course, once everybody has them, it's going to be about what you're updating. What are the features? You know, Tesla has their dog mode, which everyone in our office kind of went crazy for, but it's really a cool thing, and it, it doesn't costs a lot to add that feature, but the value you get at it just from sort of the buzz and the uniqueness. And it's why people have come to love Tesla's because of all these unique features that they can offer. But we do think that that's going to be standard going forward. Well, regarding the uh, poor resale value or residual values of EVs in general, a lot of it is because of a consumer concern that that used vehicle is going to have battery issues that they're going to get stuck with. 
in terms of paying. Now, that's not necessarily uh, the case, but it's the perception, and that has really affected the value of those uh, used EVs. Yeah, you're you're spot on. I mean, it really is the perception that drives values in the marketplace because you're asking consumers to vote with their wallet, right? And if they have concerns, if if there's any perception real or invalid, it's going to drive the price they're willing to pay. Automakers have responded with, you know, basically the, the eight year, 100,000 mile warranty seems to be standard. And that's a good first step. But we really think it's going to be about exposure, getting used to the vehicles. I'm, I'm looking at my notes here because we, we do a lot of surveys on this information and, you know, range and, and time and location of charging stations are the big, big targets there. And um, but the, the number one reason people stay away from EVs, according to our survey, is ownership costs, which is a bit of a head scratcher because you've got less moving parts. You don't have the fuel costs. Um, there's a higher cost up front, but there's a lower cost going forward. And I think it just highlights some of the inaccuracies and misperceptions that consumers have that have really been a struggle for uh, EVs, EV adoption in the marketplace. Eric, what kind of advice would you give to automakers of how to boost their residual values? Yeah, so the number one thing that we see in this time period is incentives. So if you can minimize your incentives... Um, you're not going to put that downward pressure on your used <laughs> vehicles. So every it's very common sense. You've got a four-year-old vehicle versus a three-year-old, same mileage, everything. People are going to pay more for that three-year-old, right? And so you're, you're three to two, two to one, one to new, right? So when you lower the price of that new vehicle, it pushes down the one, two, three-year-old vehicle. We call that the pass-through. So if you put $1,000 of cash on the hood of a car, and I'm going to give away some of our secret sauce right here, we see about $500 to $550 of erosion in a comparable three-year-old vehicle. Now, the kicker here also is, why do you incentivize and put cash discounts on your car? Probably because your MSRP, your price is too high. So if you can lower your MSRP, you can lower your incentives, you get a double bonus because you're not hitting that, that dollar value in the used market by discounting. And you also have a lower denominator for what the industry uses, which is the percent residuals, right? So the percent residual is simply the dollar value in three years divided by the MSRP. So you lower that pricing, you make it, make it appropriate. And you look at Subaru. Subaru has been a, a, a perennial winner in the past of our residual value award. Why? Because they're matching their production to consumer demand that allows them to minimize their incentives and they have exceptionally strong residual values as a result. Now, there's a lot of other things they're doing right, but at a baseline, that's the number one thing they're doing to support their residual values. Well, I talked to Tom Dahl, who is the uh, head of Subaru in the United States, and he said he hates incentives, number one. And number two, he says we, we can't afford to offer them because they are expensive. But I had a question in terms of the incentives that were being offered, you know, recently during the, uh, the coronavirus crisis. Um, those were all financial incentives, zero percent, you know, deferred payment, 84 month terms. Would that have um, the same impact on residuals as a cash on the hood incentive? Yes, we do see that now it, when it. 
not as much as the cash discount. So we know that's, and it's all about how transparent it is for the consumer to understand the connection. So consumers understand, hey, a thousand dollar discount. Um, they, it's harder for them to, to connect the dots when you have financing subvention and then lease subvention is, is the most confusing. Um, so that, that has the least amount of impact. But consumers do shop on monthly payment. So again, using sure the analogy, do. using that one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old relationship, um, they expect a lower monthly payment for, for a used vehicle. And, there, and there's a relationship there. So when you lower the, the monthly payment on that new vehicle, um, there's a natural effect of, of they're going to pay less or expect to pay less on the monthly payment for the use. One of the things we track, and, and it assumes that residuals are going to be about 50% after three years is what does it cost to finance a three-year-old used vehicle relative to the monthly payment of the lease? And if it's less expensive to lease, that means there's, there's something going on there that, you know, we expect the, the use to be, um, you know, a, a little bit cheaper in that comparison, but there's a little bit of a relationship between that, those age of vehicles and those uh, sort of acquisition channels for consumers. Eric, why do the OEMs, uh, the automakers, set their uh, their prices so high only to then discount them. I, I think the average incentive is well over $4,000, right? Is, yeah. Is, it oh, yeah. It, is part of the reasoning so that consumers can walk away from the dealership saying, wow, what a great deal I got. I mean, why would you price everything so high only to discount it? Well, you know, I say this analogy sometimes. I don't know if it's going to fall flat or not, but it's a, kind of like the JCPenney model, right? They had, you know, the, the discounted off of the suggested retail price. Unfortunately, we know what happened with JCPenney, right? They, they just declared bankruptcy. They tried to get away from that, and it just didn't work for their customer base. And I think consumers are just generally kind of trained to expect the incentives, especially in the full-size pickup truck segment, that cash discount has such an impact, and it's so important for those consumers. Um, I, I, it's, it's a very perplexing problem in the marketplace and you're spot on but you know brands like tesla brands like subaru they've really been able to grow their brand equity and their brand value and their and their final purchasing power by right sizing that production to demand and not having to discount but one real big reason why we see some of these cash discounts and that concerns us is is to address the negative equity position of the trade-in and what happens unfortunately is that once you throw cash onto the into the new car purchase to solve the trade-in your trade-in values in the in the next week month are going to go down as well so then to reconcile that problem you've got to put even more cash on the hood of the car and it, it, it's really a, a a negative um you know cycle that that just um brings residual values and and kind of the overall industry values down yeah it comes back to bite you well incentives are like a drug to consumers uh and there's no rehab program out there when they come to <laughs> expect them then then there's a problem but i would argue that the incentives that were offered you know during the the nadir of uh this covid thing uh which was basically april and march when sales were just totally tanking. Those were wise incentives. I mean, yeah, they cost money and they could affect residual values, but um, those made sense rather than just trying to push product that you've made and don't know what to do with. That was not the situation, which is often the case 
or was in the old days that you're, you're trying to you, you've overproduced and you're trying to get rid of the vehicles by offering the incentives. These things were these incentives of late were offered to kickstart the market. And that that was wise yeah. to have done. Yeah, I, 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 I don't disagree. I think that the devil's in the details. And I think what we've seen, if you look at inventory trends and anecdotally hear about some of the challenges uh, regionally, some dealers are having with, you know, SUVs and pickups. It was a bit of a, of a shotgun blast rather than a sniper rifle. And I think you're going to see a lot more sophistication in, in how they deploy those incentives uh, regionally and, and across different segments uh, because uh, it, it seems like in our data, we also saw transaction prices go up. So um, you know, maybe that is because the cash discount went away, but even vehicle to vehicle, it looks like what happened was the, the early people that rushed to the dealerships to take advantage of those incentives really stepped up into a more expensive vehicle rather than using it as a way just to simply afford a vehicle that suddenly they felt insecure about purchasing based on economic uncertainty or, or weren't able to afford. So I no, think sure they it more is, purchasing power. I mean, they, you know, absolutely 0% for 84 months and uh, deferred payment. Wow. Yeah. I'll buy a little extra car for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it, we, we're talking, we're hearing from dealers. Um, I'm hearing from consumers and there are some vehicles that just aren't enough inventory out there. And, and what's unusual about this downturn is that we saw, the um the the pullback on production in lockstep with the drop in demand so usually the the macroeconomic uh situation starts to go down consumers start to practice some more austerity measures being a little more cautious um and the 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 production plants are still running full steam and by the time there's momentum for the the automakers to say hey wait a second we might have some problems here with demand then they've got to go over to the to the, the plant and say, hey, slow it down or cancel a shift. And that takes time. And then they've got to contact all their suppliers. And it can be four to six months before you actually see a slowdown in production materialize in, a, in an inventory change in mass across the dealerships. That didn't happen here. Now, everything stopped all at once. So going back to the, the, the historical playbook of, um, you know, the shotgun blast of incentives, zero percent. I don't disagree. It was it was it was the right thing to do, but I think it wasn't sophisticated enough to deal with the nuance of uh, of of different regions that were open versus closed, as well as looking at the the potential uh, disruption to the supply chain and production, and when you're going to be able to start to backfill some of those uh, dealer lots as sales uh, sort of pick back up and the the economy opened again. Yeah, Eric, we're seeing average transaction price is going up. I mean, at a point in time, as Steve just pointed out, where sales crashed, prices going up. Is that because automakers are truly raising prices or is it just because it's average, they're just selling less expensive vehicles and more expensive vehicles? I think we're seeing more expensive vehicles. So that consumer that was maybe ready to, to purchase and was starting their car buying journey in February, and then all of a sudden this hits, maybe they already had the money saved, right? And maybe they had the, a plan in place. And so they're able to get a more expensive vehicle, a nicer trim, a nicer, bigger segment, who knows? 
but also the 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 economic impact has been very um, uh, it hasn't been equal across the board. So you know the Fed released that that information that that forty percent of people that made forty thousand dollars a year or less were filed for unemployment. Those aren't people that are buying new and late model used vehicles. So. Uh, the, the folks that are able, like myself, to, you know, white collar workers able to work from home, businesses continuing on, um, you know, they're, they're still able to afford a vehicle. And so the, the cut rate financing really allows them to buy a more expensive vehicle. Yeah, well, and the vehicles are more expensive because the technology on them is so great, you know, as we march on towards autonomous vehicles. So that's going to drive the cost up. But also, it's a lot of it is a consumer decision. They're buying more vehicle. They're buying SUVs. They're buying trucks, which are more expensive than cars. So it's not that the manufacturers are price gouging or anything like that. It's, uh, to a large extent, a consumer decision as to what vehicle to buy. And that's why you saw the vehicles that they were buying with those generous incentives, you know, even during the, the trough period, uh, or pickup trucks and SUVs and, you know, those transaction prices were setting records during, you know, a financial meltdown essentially or a a lockdown. Yeah. We've seen share of sales for passenger cars is now was 25% uh, in May. And, and that is, I, I, could you imagine 10 years ago during the gas price crunch of the great recession and everybody's moving towards, you know, small vehicles and, here we are, and it's totally not the case. Um, you know, gas prices are down again. Look, the, the the big SUVs and the trucks, they're just much more livable now. With They're, they're more fuel efficient. Um, they have all the safety technology and surround view cameras. The, the creature comforts are there. The ride quality is there. They're no compromise vehicles now. Um, you know, having driven a handful of different trucks and large SUVs, it's it's, it's not really a problem. You can get into that parallel parking space or go into that parking garage. And with the 360 degree cameras and everything else, it's, it's really not an issue like it once was. So I think that the trend is definitely here to stay. Um, you know, people are moving out of luxury sedans into full-size pickup trucks. It's, it's a bit crazy, but that's, the, that's where we're at now. And I don't see why it would go back the other way. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. I, I don't think it is going back. This is a global <laughs> phenomenon, not just mm-hmm. a, a U.S. one. But I got to say, we we have to wrap it up right now. Eric Lyman, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really interesting conversation. Steve Finley, always great to have you on. And Thank you, John. Show. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. AutoLine this week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Underwriting has been provided by RSM, providing audit, tax, and consulting services in the middle market automotive industry. Prepare for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market.